Hey everyone, Lauren here, and I have a question for you. Are you a fan of fantasy, but sometimes you feel burnt out on the common European tropes? Well, today's book will be a breath of fresh air for you. With cultural influence drawn from historical Mughal India and a magic system that's inspired by Hinduism, Indian culture, and even Avatar The Last Airbender, Tasha Suri's debut fantasy, Empire of Sand, will suck you in and keep you reading. I know it did with me. I was up till 4 a.m. with this book. In this episode, I chat with Tasha about the power and influence women can wield within a cloistered patriarch, what it's like to identify with two different cultures that pull you in opposing directions, and much more. We also have some amazing book recs and some NaNoWriMo advice. This is the Ink Feather Podcast. But before we dig in, I wanted to share, I'm not sure if those of you listening know that I am a fantasy photographer, and I put together two different charity projects where I photographed our favorite fantasy authors. Well, I have a bunch of signed author swag in my photography Etsy store, which is LZ Studios Imagery. You can look for goodies signed by authors like Lee Bardugo, Christopher Paolini, Holly Black, Tahada Mafi and Ransom Riggs, Maggie Stiefvater, Jim Butcher, Patrick Rothfuss, and many, many more. You can head over again to LZ Studios Imagery Etsy and check them out. Okay, now on with the podcast. Welcome to the Ink Feather Podcast, Tasha. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to have you here talking about your new book, Empire of Sand. It's out on November 13th. Is it the same in the UK as in America? It's out on the 15th in the UK, but um, I think in the UK you'll be able to get the Kindle edition on the 13th as well. Just It's just the print that comes out on the 15th. Okay, so essentially it is accessible to those listening, basically. Yeah. Okay, so for those listening who aren't familiar with this book and or maybe are curious about it but haven't read it yet how would you describe the book what's your little pitch for this the the summary of the story oh well you'd think i'd have got better at this by now but um i will think of what i've practiced okay that's okay we can you can be long if you want it's just a good <laughs> a good summary i guess to, to whet people's appetite <laughs> it's good it's good to get the pitch short and succinct succinct i think that's the word <laughs> it, it's something i need to practice so um yes Empire of Sand is an epic fantasy set in a world inspired by medieval slash early modern Mughal India. And it's the story of a girl named Meher, whose father is a nobleman and her mother is um, an exiled member of a despised nomadic people. And she accidentally reveals that she has the rare ability which she inherited from her mother to manipulate the dreams of sleeping gods. And that draws the attention of the empire's semi-immortal, sinister religious leader called the Maha. And then stuff happens. And then stuff happens. Yes. Yes. Um, Okay, well, let's just dive right into that. So you wrote this book with an influence or being inspired by Mughal India. You said Mughal India is a big prominent part of of the history of India. I was looking it up because I wasn't uh, familiar with the breadth of the Mughal Empire and um, like the Taj Mahal was built during that empire, which I thought was interesting because everybody knows that. But when you were researching or when you were just digging into this history, what what were the parts that, I guess, drew you in and made you go, okay, I want to put this into a story. I'm not, you know, how did you, what was captivating to you? Weirdly enough, I think I was, I was honestly drawn to look into the history because of Bollywood films. So I'm I'm not a big Bollywood aficionado, but my my dad was a huge fan of Bollywood films and was involved in the industry at one point. 
And because of him, I watched some of the classics. So I remember watching this film called Mughalism, um, means the great Mughal, as a kid. And it's this absolutely beautiful, very, very old film about the Mughal Empire, specifically about Emperor Akbar and his son, and the uh, kind of apocryphal story about the love affair between Akbar's son and a dancing girl named Anarkali. And mm. um, it's it's a super beautiful, almost fantastical film about love and about being a woman who isn't powerful and about the kind of the fantastical myth-making element of the Mughal Empire. So not the real Mughal Empire, but a myth of what it could have been like, the way that films mythologize so many different things. You know what I mean? That makes a lot of sense. So it was, again, drew inspiration, but it was an idealized or a potential or a could have been idea. Yes, yes, exactly. And I absolutely loved it. Um, when I was about 15, I watched a film called Jodha Akbar, which was all about a different love affair between um, Emperor Akbar and his wife, Jodha. And, oh, it was just really beautiful. The the actor and actress in it are just gorgeous. And the whole film was gorgeous. And it completely caught my imagination. And it also focused very heavily on the experience of Jodha marrying Akbar to protect her family and do the right thing. And I guess I was really drawn into that whole look and aesthetic of the Mughal Empire. And it kind of had that wonderful way of drawing you in that I kind of got with Lord of the Rings and the films for that, where you look at it and you're like, wow, that's so different and amazing. And I just want to be there and I want to experience it. It was like that, but from my own culture. And that made me want to look into the Mughal era a little bit more. And then because I'm a massive geek, I started reading and I just kept on reading. So I'm actually sitting in my living room next to a humongous bookshelf of um, books about the Mughals. And I've read sort of fairly widely about the era, but my real interest was in the experiences of women. And I was super fascinated by this idea that the Mughal royal women in particular and many high caste Hindu women lived in burda or um, basically veiled, never visible to the public, always cloistered away. And yet they had humongous political economic power. Hmm. Yeah. And I became well, for example, Emperor Jahangir was married to a woman called Nojahan, who was a widow with a child from her first marriage. And she um, adhered to veiling and was not visible, but she was also a really famous hunter. She hunted tigers. She was really good with a musket. And she ruled the empire through him. There were coins struck in her name. So oh women had power. Not all women, obviously, but I was really interested in that, the kind of power that a woman could have in that kind of very specific cloistered patriarchy. Because I think when women in kind of Eastern or Indian historical reimaginings are depicted, they're kind of victims or invisible, or um, I guess femme fatales. They don't get to be real people with with power and with weaknesses and who have to make choices. And that's something I wanted to explore. Well, and, and there's so much of what you just said that reference our main character that I was like, oh, yep, that happened to her. Or yep, I can see that influence like so much. Like you said, she's extremely complicated. And I want to dig into her a little bit later. But yeah, like that's, it's interesting that you were able to pull so much of the influence and history of these women that this like niche of women that um, were there. And it's not again, you're not making it up. It's just drawing from the reality. Now, now taking that, you threw a bunch of magic at it, <laughs> basically. Yes. 
<laughs> where did the magic system come from? Where did you get these different ideas? Where does the influence end and your imagination begin? Like, there's a lot of cool stuff in this book. It's it's kind of difficult to say. I think I wish I'd, I'd thought really carefully about the magic system before I made it. But honestly, I sort of went, oh, I think this would be cool and this would be cool. And it's only in kind of excavating backwards that I figured out what influenced me <laughs> so so I grew up um my my grandma was was fairly religious and she would watch these Indian epics on her cable tv and she watched things like the Ramayana and the Mahabharat and the Krishna Leela which are really big big epics but they consist of certain tropes and certain kinds of magic that are just commonplace which are very different I think from sort of Judeo um Christian religious mythology. And you're saying her religion, you're saying Hinduism. Yes, yeah. Okay. So the Mughal Empire was an Islamic empire, but I drew the magic and the religious aspects of the book from Hinduism. Okay. Partly because that's what I know, and partly because if you're going to critique something, it should probably be your own thing. But yeah, so she used to watch these things, and they had gods walking the world, and they had terrible vows that can control people. So the Mahabharata and the Ramayana rest on the idea that honourable people make vows and they don't break them and that can have terrible consequences if you make vows to the wrong people and that's something that comes up in the book and I grew up also seeing my friends go to Indian classical dance lessons and things like that which I wasn't necessarily very interested in and I knew that Indian classical dance used hand symbols and stances to communicate stories of the gods and as act of, acts of worship so Essentially, those are all kind of things that turn up in the book, but they're all things that I grew up seeing and I think were at the back of my mind when I started writing a magical system in an Indian-esque world, because I drew on the kind of the Indian-esque things that were in my subconscious. I actually have something similar as a question, because I was saying part of part of the storyline, part of the myth, the mythos in this book is that there is this evolution of, you know, descending from the gods and some power beyond a standard human and gods walking among men, like you're saying, but that is, that is across the world. And I'm, I'm just really curious, like you were saying, it's different Hinduism, obviously, from the, you said the Judeo-Christian, but they're all, there's some, inf there's always, you know, similarities too. I'm, I'm really curious, I guess, when you were thinking about this, if you're, there was anything specifically that felt non-Western to you? Or was it just all of these things, like you're saying, Hindu, you were just sort of immersed in the culture, I guess? I think you're right that there are some things that are universal. Like now I've said, oh, God's walking here. Uh, yeah, that's, that's everywhere. I think kind of things like light, blood, ritual, color, magic, they're all things that happen in every single culture. But if we're talking about specifics that were probably drawn from Hinduism, the dance aspect. Yeah. Yeah, there's magic in the book, which is all based on dance. It's so cool. Like, I was just like, wow, you do a thing with your hand and you drive away evil spirits. And this is amazing. Like, how cool to have this sacred power in movement. It, it's, it's, I wish I was good at dancing because I really enjoyed writing about it. And I watched a lot of videos of Indian classical dance. So there's, there's many, many types of Indian classical dance across the breadth of India. I specifically drew on one, which is Bharatnatyam, which uses mudras or hand sigils, and they mean different things. And I, I wanted to kind of bring that into the magic of the book. And I guess you kind of see something similar whenever you see a magic system like in Avatar The Last Airbender that draws on um, different martial arts styles. It's my favorite TV show of all time. So I'm with you. <laughs> 
honestly, I also kind of wanted it to be a feminine kind of magic, even though it's performed by people of, you know, all genders. So I wanted it to be something that was less, you know, not a martial art, but more dance, because dance is dance. It's just not an aggressive thing. And yet it's so powerful and it can be so emotive and it has so much relevance to my cultural heritage. And it was just really nice to use that. And I do think that's definitely a kind of very Hindu thing that I brought into the book. Absolutely. I mean, and and I guess when I was thinking gods walking earth, I mean, first thing that came to mind was like Greek and Roman mythology, because you think of all the myths we've learned over the years of those like, you know, Achilles and people who were descendants, you know, like, I was kind of like, oh, interesting. It's, it's, it goes back to, you know, there's all these influences that can be pulled from different cultures, but there's some similarities too. I just, it was neat to read that and kind of feel something a little different and experience something that I had experienced before as a, as a reader. So that was really neat. I hope you're enjoying my interview with Tasha. I just want to remind you again of my author swag, signed author swag at my photography Etsy store, which is LZ Studios Imagery. There were 14 authors in each calendar, so there's a lot of cool fantasy authors to pick from. I have signed photos. I have bookmarks and postcards. I even have some book plates for some of the authors. So go ahead, check it out. It's my photography Etsy store, and it's LZ Studios Imagery. Okay, back to the interview. I want to kind of dig into Meher like we were talking about a minute ago. She is such an interesting main character because she is kind of split down the middle. Like you said, one parent is like the socially acceptable race and the other parent is this exiled tribes person. And she draws influence in her life from both, even though she seems to identify a little stronger with her mom's side, which is the the tribal side, I guess, um, which comes more to fruition as the story continues. I want to I kind of want to talk about, though, like as you were creating her, how was it for you and why was it important to you as a writer to have her such a have her have a conflict of identity like that? Because she is kind of, you know, has many times, like you said, she has to choose just to make these choices of sacrifice of, of, you know, different paths that obviously end in different, very different ways. And, and yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff she had to deal with because of that. That, that was definitely, I mean, I'm not biracial, but I, and I hope I handled her sort of mix of cultures and heritages as respectfully as possible, but I am of Indian descent. And I've grown up in Britain. So I was born in Britain and raised in Britain. But I also have family in India that I visit fairly regularly. And I I used to go every year as a kid. And I was very close to them. And I'm still very close to them. But I don't speak Punjabi and I don't speak Hindi. And at the same time, I grew up with the myths and legends and religious beliefs of my family. So that essentially, there are bits of me that are very Indian. And those are not always bits that I can define. Some of them are in my kind of my heritage or my ethos or my sense of what the world is. But there are also bits of me that are very not Indian. And certainly my Indianness is kind of like a weird thing preserved in amber because it was brought over by immigrants. And it's their Indianness that's like influenced mine. It isn't the same as the the way it would mean to be Indian if I had been born and raised in India. Yeah. So you almost get this kind of like ghostly culture that you've inherited and you're never quite English and you're never quite Indian. But if you want to keep your Indianness, you have to work for it. 
And at the same time, you kind of have to make choices about how you behave and what you do. I mean, that's that's a very generic point. But I think when you come from a culture that's very different from the culture that you live in, you do have to make choices about what you do. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a very relevant point. I think just collectively, like I think that that you just need to be aware, I guess. Yes. And and I mean, it's it's a tricky one because I don't want to say, oh, um, Punjabi Indian culture in the UK is really strict or traditional because it's as mixed and as diverse as any other culture. But at the same time, you know, if you, as a girl, you're expected sometimes by certain people to behave in a certain way. And then you have to make a choice about what kind of way you present yourself. And accordingly, that kind of gave me a sense of how you can wear many different faces in order to protect your own freedom and your own choices. Um, And that's a really big theme in the book. Obviously, in the book, it's taken to a whole different level from just, you know, like lying to your uncle or whatever. But it is something that I think is the experience of a lot of people who are between two cultures or um, are raised in one country, but also have heritage from another. And it's something I wanted to present in the book. It's interesting how it comes up to in in unexpected ways, how she, you know, so much of the book is her leaning towards her mom and her mom, for those listening, her mom was exiled before the story when she was younger and she's a late teen at this point. And uh, so she's like, where is my mom? Is she still alive? Is she out there? Where is she? And then as the story continues and she's confronted with those things, it's almost like she leans back and goes, okay, well, I'm, I still feel in between, you know, it's not like this, this piece isn't necessarily completed me. And it's not like, okay, this is who I am. Cause like you said, she was raised a certain way. And, and like, that was, that's a big deliberate part of the story is like, she was deliberately raised to be, uh, to be in the inclusive culture that she is, you know, that is her father is a governor and, and all of these, you know, in that environment but yet at the same time you know she her mom asked a friend to kind of make sure that her side of things wasn't forgotten and it is relevant so yeah it's neat it's it's really interesting or I guess it's not sure what the word I want is I'm getting a like a more of a depth of appreciation of this book having talked to you because hearing the the research of of these women who are seen as restricted but have this power and influence and and how it kind of manifests it's it's so much more to this character now like she is such a cool character just as she is but hearing your kind of backstory with her it just made it really um makes it really neat to kind of dig into her a bit more so oh thank you so much i mean yeah i i could talk about moogle women <laughs> till the cows come home but i it, it's been really nice to write a book where i could both kind of bring my own experiences and my own you know, not like deep, intense conflicts, but things that I'd experienced to a character, but then also draw on bits of history that I don't think are necessarily that familiar to readers. I can, I'm happy to recommend some books about Mughal women as well that I've really been enjoying lately. I kind of want to learn more about that badass tiger hunter lady. That sounds amazing. I'm like, oh my God, that woman is more cool than I will ever be in my life. Like Her birth name. So she was called Nur Jahan. Like a lot of the um, the Mughal royal women had titles or names that were given to them by the emperor. Um, and we don't always know their birth names, but we do know hers. So she was called Nur Jahan, which means I think light of the world. But her birth name was Mehrun Nissa. So Meher Un Nissa, which means um, son of women. 
So I named Mehud for her because I thought she was really cool. Yeah, I'm with you there. I was like, oh, my God, like, that's just incredible. Yeah. So, wow, if this book, it just has so much neat stuff in it. I will say for those of you listening, um, I was given an audio copy and a physical copy to to prep for this interview. And I started with the audio, but I would I was distracted. So I was like, you know, let me read and get into the characters and then I can listen. I started reading it like. 7 30 8 o'clock at night thinking I'd dig in before bed and pick the audio up the next day and before I knew it uh, I was like four-fifths of the way through the book and it was 4 a.m so I was <laughs> I was telling Tasha this earlier before we started I was like this book totally sucked me in because it was you know this this magic like this mysterious desert that has magic in it and then there's these like spirit creatures that she can see and some people can't and are they real are they not and or people are avoiding them and what does it mean and then there's this dream fire that rains down from the sky there's just so much neat magic that it was just beautiful and and intriguing that I was just like I have to keep going and then of course not far into the book we have a we have a boy that Indeed we do. That makes yeah. his presence known. And I love this guy so much. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad. <laughs> I want to be his friend just so I can tease him because he's so serious, but he's such a good soul. Like, I just love this dude. Um, his name's Amun in the books. And he is, oh, he's just a, a, a wonderful balance to her and, and you know, you you wonder about his intent and what the purpose of their connection and relationship will be as the story continues. You obviously see what happens with them and, and how it develops. And that must have been really fun to write their dynamic. Oh, I loved it so much. I mean, I I love a good romance. I'm I'm not gonna make <laughs> I'm not going to say anything else. I mean, I, I know that not all fantasy readers love romance, but I if a book doesn't have a good romance, I'm I'm genuinely not going to love it as much as I would have if it had, if that makes sense. No, I'm with you 100% because I think that's real. I mean, who isn't? Most people I know are either in love or finding love or suffering from the ending of love. I mean, it's just a part of our wiring and our DNA as humans. So the power of love is like a big thing that I know it's so cliche, but it's also something that I, I like to write about and like to think about. And yeah, I just, I really wanted to write some kind of relationship dynamic or romantic dynamic into um, my book. And it was, yeah, it was just a joy to write because they are so different from each other. And yet at the same time, Amon's just a big, soft, scary teddy bear. And <laughs> yeah, what does she say to him at one point? Like um, when they were starting to kind of, because they're kind of thrust into each other's lives and have to deal with each other. And I'm trying not to give any big spoilers away here. And um, and they have to find a way to kind of work together, even though they're not really sure of each other. And as they start to become f more friendly, at one point she says to him, like, you take up a lot of space. Like, you're just a yes, big dude, basically. And I laughed because I was like, <laughs> you're it's like, what? sometimes you just meet those people. You're like, wow, you're just a large human. Like, you just are a big person, you know, <laughs> like. I think I did. I wrote, well, I had to do an interview for the back of the book. And I'm pretty sure I said that I would want Amon to give me piggyback rides. That has not changed. <laughs> I still would. And he'd be nice to refuse. He would. He would just be like, oh, okay. <laughs> like his well, kind of. Yeah. And you have a really neat magic 
um, involvement with him too. And again, I, I don't really want to give too many spoilers away, but there's a whole other side to the magic that we see through him and kind of a, a different way it manifests in him. And, and there's just all these layers. And I, I guess I want to kind of, I don't want to dig too much deeper in. I just, I feel like we've wet the appetite. Guys, this book is so good. It was such a pleasure to read. It was such a fun book to get lost in and, I'm like I said, I'm digging it more now that I know a the history. You said even like influence from Avatar with the movement. I'm like I've, I'm feeling that it was I, Avatar. Fi- oh my god, it's the best ever! <laughs> it's the best ever. I swear, I talk about it in every podcast episode. Either that or Elemental Magic. One of those two things comes up every episode. But yeah, I mean, all of those things just drew me in, and I like I said, it was such a pleasure. Now I left the, probably the final 60, 70 pages. I was going to read them this morning. I like to keep the book fresh right before I interview. So then I get to the climax. I'm not going to spoil it, but I was like, holy crap. <laughs> I literally <laughs> said, holy crap. When I read this thing that happens, this big giant out of the blue, I just wasn't expecting how these things were happening. And then more stuff happens. And it was such a good climax. But then at the end of the book, you kind of leave us feeling good. Like a lot of first books in series, it's like, I don't want to say they leave on a cliffhanger per se, but it's like a somebody's dying and we have to go save them or somebody's gone or, you know, like, and, and there's still all this work to be done. And there's a lot of upheaval in the world. But, you know, it just it felt nice. It was like, oh, I feel good. This was a great ending to this book. So I feel like you wrapped it up well. I mean, was that an intentional thing or did it just sort of how it ended that way? No, it was totally intentional. I really wanted the book to work on its own because I've read lots of series and I kind of get, oh, oh, this isn't always true, but I do get kind of annoyed when things end on a cliffhanger because then I think, oh, now I have to wait a year for the next one. Great. Mm. Yeah. And I, I, I actually didn't realize how uncommon it is nowadays until I read yours and went, oh, oh I feel good like I <laughs> I feel like I'm okay I'm good I mean I'm gonna read the next one stuff's gonna happen I know the world's still in upheaval but I you know I'm, I'm good I'm cool so I'm totally with you there and it was uh it's much appreciated as a reader I, I it was quite a nice delightful um change of pace I guess I'm, I'm gonna make a confession to you um <laughs> so you know I like a good romance Yes. Well, I, I read a lot of romance. Me and that, too. And that's something that, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but that's something romance series do really, really well. They create books that draw on each other, but they're also kind of discrete stories in themselves. You've got a beginning, a middle, and end. You get a satisfying conclusion, and you know that if you pick up the next one, you're going to get the same thing. Yes. I like that. So that's what I'm trying to do with this series. Well... It was you succeeded with book one, I will I will say. And it was I was really curious to see because a lot happens in those last 50 pages, but it it didn't feel rushed. But it definitely kind of brought me up and was like, holy crap. And then a lot more happens. And then, okay, now we have a kind of good, like you said, a wrap up, even though the overarching story isn't done. If nothing ever happened with these books ever again, I would have felt like, oh, okay, these guys are good. You know, I I have, I feel good. So yeah, I think you nailed it. That was very enjoyable. But we know that they go into book two because you, not only is there an excerpt in the back, but I've seen you mentioning it on, there's been things online and stuff too. And what is going on in book two with our characters? Can you give us any hints for those who maybe have read the books or are going, oh, I love this. I want to know what keeps going. Gosh, um, funnily enough, I don't think the UK edition has the sample at the back. I think it's the US one. <laughs> well, sorry, Britain, you have to come to America. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I literally have it here. It's Orbit is the publisher here. And yes. the story continues in Realm of Ash. Yes. A novel so of the books of Amba. Keep reading for sneak peek. That's literally what I happens. I think it's a little blurb as well. Um, I won't open my copy, but yeah, um, the Realm of Ash, um, Realm of Ash covers, moves fairly far into the future. And it's looking at the story of Meher's little sister as an adult. Because as you said, a lot changes about the world at the end of um, Empire of Sand. And I really wanted to kind of look at the ways the world has altered. And I also quite geekily wanted to move towards the centre of the empire and look at what royal life is like as well. And explore kind of some of the really interesting oh I don't want to give too much away some of the interesting royal struggles that I've read about I, I I love already that it's not like the next week and they're rebuilding it's like okay time has passed and what's going on and I that's because the for those of you listening the the sister is like eight or something in this book so she's a child full-blown child and so for her to be an adult yeah at least a decade's passed so ooh, that's gonna be interesting to read Yes, I hope it will be. I I think it's quite interesting. Oh, no, I can't say that because that will give things away. <laughs> it's quite interesting to explore consequences of certain things and the way consequences can have a really big impact on um, individual people, but also on societies. And I don't really think I can say any more than That's that. That's okay. I mean, you're, and you're saying consequences from what occurred in book one and how they're kind of manifesting in book two? Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly that. Okay, cool. So we'll, what we read and experience will be drawn into the next book. That's very, oh, this is going to be great. I can't wait to read it. I'm like, oh, I, I didn't read the excerpt because I didn't want to like get my mind in a different place before we talked. But I'm totally going to check that out. That's really cool. Have you had the chance to read anything lately? I love to ask authors what they're reading because usually there's something interesting that our, our listeners can check out. Oh, yeah, I'm always reading. I recently finished The Vanisher's Palace by Aliette de Baudard. Um, Hopefully I've said her name correctly, but it's an absolutely beautiful book. It's a Beauty and the Beast retelling in a Vietnamese post-apocalyptic world with two women, one of whom is a dragon. Oh my, oh my gosh. What? Yes. <laughs> that yep. is a heck of a summary. Goodness. Wow. That sounds amazing. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? I couldn't give my own book a summary like that, but that book, that book was awesome. And I literally just got a package in the post um, right before this interview started. So I've got Girls of Paper and Fire to read. Um, I don't know if you've heard about that. I but... have heard it's in really good. Oh, I've, I've heard nothing but good stuff. I'm really excited about it. And also one of my agency sisters, so somebody else represented by the same literary agency as me, um, wrote a book called The Light Between Worlds, which is what happens to after Narnia, basically. So when you come back from Narnia, what happens to you? <laughs> Reality. Boo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> reality. But it's meant to be really beautiful, and I'm really excited about reading that. I've also read, I, I read too much. God, what was it? Under the Pendulum Sun, which has been out for about a year now, but I absolutely love. And it's by Jeanette Ng. And it's, how do I explain it? Missionaries go to fairyland. Yes, Christian missionaries go to Arcadia or fairyland. Oh my gosh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> It's, it's really, um, it's like, it's like Flowers in the Attic meets the Fairy Queen meets the Brontes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. 
it's wow. pretty good. Those are all, I'm like, I'm, by the way, I'm laughing as you're like, I read too much as I'm surrounded by my library. I have a room that's a <laughs> library. So I'm like, literally as you're I'm like giving side eye to my books, as you're like, I read too much. I'm like, girl, I don't think anyone who listens to this podcast is going to, they're going to like you more because of that. Excellent. Wow. Excellent. Those are all great recommendations. Before we go, I just want to ask you real quick. It is November, which is NaNoWriMo month, National Novel Writing Month, for those of you listening who maybe don't know what that is. Are you a NaNoer? I am an accidental NaNoer <laughs> that I'm finishing book two. So I'm trying to make sure it's done soon, which means working quite intensely through November. Hey, that works. You're in you're in good company because I think there's a lot of creative writing energy being poured into the world at the moment. Um, is there any writer tips or anything that you've experienced in your journey of being a writer that maybe would help? Because I know a lot of our listeners are, are writers as well as readers. Any any just things you've learned? I've learned that if you're not enjoying writing it, there might be something wrong in the chapter you're working on. I can't promise that you will find the solution as quickly as you'd like. But just play around with what you're doing. Focus on what the characters are like and work from there. That's not very good advice. Um, well, no, it's kind of like trusting your gut with that. Because if you're trying to force something, then there's obviously something maybe not working. Yeah, exactly. And I'm also a big fan of planning. I know a lot of people are not fans of planning. So I think this depends on what kind of person you are. But if you're like me and you get quite anxious when you look at a blank page and you go, I don't know what I'm doing. Actually making some notes makes your life a lot easier. And it gives you a little framework to work from. And then sometimes that gives you the confidence and the freedom to do something different and interesting. Hmm. So within the structure, you have freedom to play, basically, because of yeah. that giving you the freedom because you have enough confidence now. That's actually interesting because it's almost counterintuitive, but it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I found it's always worked for me really well. I, I plan to a ridiculous degree. So I do um, an outline of the whole book and then I bullet point each chapter as I go. Not sure I'd suggest that to everyone, but I find by doing that, when I suddenly have a revelation and I'm like, oh, actually, I want to do this, I have a very clear framework for threading that through the story. And I'm not as worried about it kind of breaking yeah. it. Interesting. So it actually helps you incorporate it better because you already know the the overarching storyline. So you can kind of go, oh, this works really well here. And then in chapter 20, I can do this or whatever. Huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I can work backwards as well that way. Wow, that's really, that's a really good tips, actually. Really um, kind of think outside of the standard, you know, get your butt in the seat and write, which obviously is important too. <laughs> but good ways to think of things. I, I know the, the idea of sitting down and writing every day is really important, but I find that doesn't always work. I think it can make you, it depends again on who you are. I'm a very anxious person. So I find it makes me quite anxious. Whereas if I kind of give myself permission to kind of play around a bit and take breaks, I find I get more done. So I guess my main advice is know what your neuroses are and work around those. <laughs> know what your issues are and use them to your advantage, I guess. <laughs> and on that note, um, I think we're going to wrap it up here. This was so awesome. Thank you so much for talking with me about Empire of Sand. Oh, you're welcome. I've had a really lovely time. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. And Inkfeather Podcast will be back soon with a new episode. This is Lauren and Tasha signing out. Bye.